Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm your host, Chris Babbitts. Today's guest is Stanley Hanlon Cousins, the author of Bodies in Blue, Disability in the Civil War North, published by the University of Georgia Press. As Sarah observes in Bodies in Blue, the Civil War was many things, but in a very practical sense, it centered, as all wars do, on the destruction of the human body. Disability is a necessary byproduct of war, and without coming to terms with that reality, we will never fully understand the full experience of this conflict or any other. Our conversation today is part of that reckoning to understand the intersections of war and disability in history. Thank you for so much for being with us, Sarah. Thank you for having me. To get things started, could you tell our listeners a little about yourself? Absolutely. Um, so I am a clinical assistant professor of history at the University at Buffalo, where I teach lots of classes on the history of medicine and the history of disability. And whenever I can, I like to try to draw connections in my classes with the, you know, between those two things and also the history of, of the U.S. military and militaries in general. I also am the associate director of the Center for Disability Studies here at UB. And in addition to that work, I'm also an editor at the blog Nursing Clio, and I am one of the four producers of Dig a History podcast. So I'm up to all sorts of things. Yeah, it sounds like you keep yourself very busy. I do indeed. <laughs> okay. Uh, what compelled you to write Bodies in Blue? Um. You know, when I was looking for a a topic to work on for my dissertation, um, I was really kind of casting around. I, I was not a typical PhD student in that I didn't come into my program knowing what I was going to write about. I think a lot of PhD students know exactly what they're going to study. Um, and I knew that I wanted to study the Civil War. And that was really it. Um the only other thing that I knew was that I have always been really fascinated by gender and particularly masculinity. And so 
I knew that was going to make a core of it. But um, other than that, I really wasn't sure. And so um, I had a lot of conversations with my advisor, Carol Emberton, and just honestly started doing a lot of reading. And at the time that I was first kind of formulating my ideas, I was very lucky to get to take um, some, some classes on the history of health and disability and realized that I was just absolutely fascinated by it. It was not something that I had ever learned. I, in, in any history class I'd ever taken, had never touched on the history of medicine or the history of disability. And so I thought, you know, there must be a way to connect these two things. Um, so initially I started reading about Civil War medicine. Um, and I, I realized that wasn't as, as fascinating as it was. It wasn't really clicking for me. And I, I think that I wanted to go deeper. I, I really, um, I wanted to know more about the people at, at the center of the story. And I felt like in studying medicine specifically, I was getting a lot of kind of the hero narrative about the, you know, the, the ways that doctors, you know, patched people up and kept things going and, and that sort of thing. And I, I thought, well, what about the people that are, um, that are actually getting patched up, right? Like what is their experience? And so I, I really didn't know what I was going to find. And so I sort of just was casting around for ideas. I, I thought I want to look more at the patients. I think I want to talk about disability. And so I just started reading and thinking. Um, one of the first things that I realized was that everything that I was reading about Civil War disability was focused on amputation. And really, that was my first that was my the, the first thing that I considered that I think sparked the whole project was this realization that everything about Civil War disability that's been written so far was about amputation. And I just, maybe I was a contrarian, but my first thought was, there's got to be more to this story, right? There's got to be more um, to it than just people who had lost an arm or a leg. Who are those other people and how can I get at their stories? And once I started thinking about that, that's when the other topics, the other, I mean, the book moves very thematically. And so that's when those other topics started to, to come into focus, right? How do I get the stories that are a little bit more complicated, um, that aren't quite so clear cut as the story of amputation? Um, so that's sort of how I came to it. And I think that, I mean, I, I like that you use the word compelled. Um, at the beginning, I feel like I wasn't compelled, right? I was just kind of casting around. Um, but it was as I moved through the project that I came to really see how important that it, how important the topic was. And the, the more I worked on it, the more I was compelled to tell these stories. And I think that that interest that you uh, probably had along the way while you were discovering new things, thinking about things uh, about what could count as disability, really come through throughout the entire book is that sense of wonder uh, and excitement as you probably came across new sources that that challenged maybe preconceived notions, but also pushed you in the directions that you went with with the book. Yeah, I- I'm glad to hear that that came through. I, I I really wanted to try to push people's idea of what counts as disability, what do we think, you know, when we say civil war disability, um, what gets to be part of that story and what doesn't, I really wanted to kind of challenge our notions there. 
Yeah, and I think you do a really good job in your introduction setting up what counts as disability, but also how you're going to analyze this. So yeah. in, in, in the introduction, you do write about using the social model of disability. What is this model, and why did you choose this model over other options to understand disabilities in the Civil War North? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in disability studies and in disability history, um, it's been it's sort of a theoretical basis to how we approach um, disability uh, as a topic. And so there's two ways sort of of looking at disability from a scholarly viewpoint. And it's uh, the first is the traditional, which is the medical model. Um, that's what I think most of us are most familiar with, um, what we encounter the most often. And the medical model says that disability is something that is highly individual it exists in the body of a particular person. It is very, um, it is very isolated in that person's body, and that it comes under the purview of doctors, right? Doctors and authorities and experts. I should say it's not always doctors, but various experts sort of have um, domain over that over the disability. Um, and it also sort of frames disability as something that is inherently negative and should be cured um, using all the powers of modern medicine, right? And so this is the kind of um, analysis of disability that you'd get in sort of your traditional medical history, right? That um, pioneering doctors are trying to find ways to fight back against disability, right? Maybe they're not saying disability is inherently bad, but that's that's what um, comes out of it, right? When you're talking about how dis or how doctors were like um, striving and trying to cure things, right? It, it casts it as something that nobody wants. Everybody wants to cure. Um, it also the medical model tends to look at the history of disabled people through the viewpoint of those authority figures. So again, traditional maybe medical histories that are solely from the perspective of the authorities, from the doctors or the nurses or the social workers or whoever. And the social model looks at disability very differently. So the social model says that disability is something that is socially and culturally constructed, that its meaning changes over time. I use this example with my students all the time, that um, if you take two people who are missing a limb, for instance, two people missing a leg, um, and one is a veteran and one is, you know, an overweight person or someone who's perceived as overweight, um, who maybe has type two di diabetes, those two disabilities mean something different, right? Like they're interpreted in different ways. So that's what I mean by socially and culturally constructed, right? And, and that the, that disability can change over time and place, what it means to be physically disabled in one part of the world means something different from what it means to be physically disabled in a different part of the world. Um, and then another part of the social model that I think is really crucial is that part of it is sort of this commitment to listening to the voices of disabled people themselves, right? That they are the ones who, um, who should be at the center of the narrative. They're the ones that should be um, listened to when it comes to their perceptions or their beliefs about their disability rather than doctors and authorities, right? Um, and so I thought that it was 
critical to look at civil war disability from this perspective, because it allows us to sort of understand how people experience disability outside of the the simple kind of, um, you know, it was bad narrative, right? I think that many of us, when we encounter anything about civil war disability, it's about amputation. And usually it is, you know, in some, like, I always think of the iconic film scenes where there's like blood everywhere and people are screaming, right? That's the narrative we usually get. Um, And that's not to say that it's not true. It's very accurate usually. Um, But that there's a lot more to the story and that by looking at disability through the social model, we can see all of the rest of the the ways that disability is shaped, how its meaning is constructed, what it means to different groups, how those meanings are contested, um, depending on, you know, who the person is and what they're trying to get, whether it's pension funding or, you know, a, a break from the front lines, um, how those definitions and, and how disability can become something that is um, that people disagree over. Right. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit more depth about that, because you you talk uh, or you write a lot about this in when some of your first chapters about those contestations over what disability meant and uh, either for pensions or for leave. And and I, I thought that was a really interesting debate between oftentimes soldiers and officers who had different uh, interpretations of that and then also obviously surgeons. I was really fascinated by um, the ways that people disagreed over what disability meant, right? If you're looking at it from a medical standpoint, from the medical model, um, disability is always straightforward and it's always very easily perceived. And the reality is that that's not always the case, right? Disability is actually very tricky and and, um, its meaning changes and people can be more disabled and less disabled depending on the time of day or the time of year or the weather, right? Or or even the the environment in which they're existing, right? Um, And so I... um, I initially was interested in whether or not soldiers were being um, were coming into conflict with military authority when it came to their bodies. And I thought, well, maybe I could find something in court martials. And I ended up uh, focusing a lot on that. And I think it's the second chapter is really focused on, on court martials. And I found that that's really what the conflict ended up being about between soldiers and their officers was over who had the power to determine who was disabled and who was not disabled. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. And I also think the social model of disability, as you use that and in, as you're analyzing a lot of these cases, opened up other possibilities, such as including illness within the term of or the use of the term disabled. So why is it important to include illnesses as part of the disability history of the Civil War? Yeah, this is something that uh, that I had to think a lot about. I had to spend a lot of time sort of considering how I was going to talk about illness. And um, part of the the reason that I had to really, really think my way through this is because this is controversial. Well, a controversial might be too strong of a word. This is something that there's been a lot of debate over within disability studies um, circles. And that's because illness is in some ways very different from disability in that it often is temporary. It often is curable. Um, and 
some disability scholars would say, well, then it, it can't quite, it doesn't quite meet the threshold of disability. Um, and it maybe in a way sort of cheapens the term disability by broadening, broadening it so much. Um, and so I, I really did have to stop and give this a lot of thought and make sure that I was, um, that I was going into this with a lot of nuance and care, right? And ultimately, I decided that it was critical to talk about illness as a disability during the Civil War for a number of reasons. One, more people, uh, more soldiers during the Civil War experience illness than they do physical disability, right? There are, um, I can't remember the exact figure that I come up with, but it's something like, you know, a half to three quarters or something of the Union Army experienced what they would call camp fever or essentially diarrhea at some point during the war, right? So the experience of illness was ubiquitous. The other one of the other reasons I thought that it was really important is um, because the army considered it a disability. You could be discharged, disabled from the army if you had uh, an illness, right? And so I had to think about the army's definition of disability in that sense. Yet another reason I thought it was really important is because soldiers themselves, soldiers write a lot about their experience of, of health and illness. Um, the scholar that comes to mind that I think really helped to um, bring a lot of attention to this recently is Catherine Shively, who wrote the book uh, Nature's Civil War, in which she really talks about how soldiers considered their bodily experience of, of illness and health and how much that impacted morale. Um, and so I was really, I felt like I was really sort of following in her footsteps there. Um, and the, the to go along with that, part of that, um, part of thinking about how soldiers themselves were talking about it also meant taking soldiers words very seriously. Right. And so when they were talking about how incapacitated they felt because of whatever illness, whether it was diarrhea or rheumatism or something, um, I felt that I had to take that very seriously and treat it as a a serious issue, even if the army wasn't always uh, feeling quite that same way. Yeah, and I thought that was a very absorbing part, absorbing part of your book, which is how you identify the importance of recognizing soldiers as experiences of their own bodies. And this is an important methodological issue, I think, when that was key for your analysis throughout. Uh, can you talk about how your interpretation of sources written by soldiers themselves provided you a new interpretation of disability in the Civil War? Yeah, um, this was... This was also something that I I had to spend a lot of time thinking about as I was putting the book together, um, especially in kind of the final stages, as I was really trying to think about um, almost theoretically and methodologically what I was doing. Um, I feel like I I feel like I wrote it and then kind of went back to the introduction and had to go, what am I doing? What is it that I'm doing here? (laughs) Um, Which is probably something that many of us experience. But um, I had this experience very early on in writing. Um, in fact, it was when I was writing about um, some of the stuff that ended up in the sixth chapter about mental illness and war trauma, that when I talked about soldiers who had mental illness um, and 
kind of speculated that their mental illness was connected to the war, I found that people were really quick to say, well, how do you know that they didn't have um, this other disease? How do you know that they didn't have, you know, a hereditary bipolar disorder? How do you know that it wasn't this other thing? Um, and I thought, that's odd. Why are, why are we so quick to ignore what the soldier is saying and instead try to kind of backwards filter their experience through what we know about diagnoses today as if that was a way of kind of dismissing their their experiences or their symptoms, right? If they were saying they were connecting their mental trauma to the war, who are we to say that it wasn't that, right? I, I just, I found that really strange. Um, and I, it came back up again in other places where I was reading um, other scholars, the work on, um, the, particularly around issues of desertion, um, um, malingering accusations, and, the, and then later on after the war, pension, the pension system. Because I found that a lot of scholars um, were very quick to agree with authority figures when authority figures accused a soldier of being X, Y, and Z, right? So um, one of the examples of this is, I think it's Alan Nevins and his biography of Grover Cleveland um, kind of talks about how the pension system was riddled with fraud and there was all of these soldiers who were, you know, terrible. They were bad soldiers to begin with. Many of them were deserters. Many of them were malingering. Um, and I found that narrative was really common. And I just, I found myself thinking, well, I'm reading the sources of the soldiers themselves. And it sure doesn't sound like they're faking uh, to me. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and trust them right? We've, there's a huge body of scholarship that focuses on the words of the doctors and the authority figures and the presidents and the, you know, uh, everybody else. Why not, um, why not go out on a limb and just say, you know, I'm going to put more stock in the soldiers' letters here. And people can disagree with me. Um, and I think some people will disagree with me on that and say, you know, we shouldn't always trust what the soldiers were saying. They had motive to, you know, if, if they exaggerated a little bit, then they could earn their pension or they could get a higher payout or they could get time off or whatever it was. And I just think of it as a kind of, I almost think of it as kind of a radical act of disability activism to say, no, you know what, I'm going to put my stock in the words of the disabled person here. And if I'm wrong in a case or two, then I guess I'm going to have to be wrong. Um, rather than using my work to continue to prop up the the authority of doctors and and um, you know pension bureaucrats and things of that nature, it's not to say that there aren't any liars. There certainly are. I, I just had a conversation with another scholar named Adam Dombey about this. He's found all sorts of of fraudsters um, among Confederate veterans. They certainly there were liars out there. Um, I decided as a methodological choice that I was going to put more stock in the soldier's words um, and risk it 
<laughs> you know, I don't think that I have any liars in my book, but you know, somebody can certainly prove me wrong. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, I think one of the things that you do so well is you show that there are many reasons not to lie, right? And throughout Bodies in Blue, you highlight these intersections between manhood, class, and disability in interesting ways. What do you think are some of the most important insights gained from exploring the intersections of gender, class, and disability in the Civil War North? Hmm, some of the most important insights. I mean, I think that one of the things that I'm most proud of, I guess, in the book is um, trying to make it clear how important it was for soldiers to maintain a image of able-bodiedness, even if that came at high cost. Right. Um, I think that for a long time, we've been very invested in the idea that disability always looks one way. It always presents in very overt physical forms, things that are very um, visually obvious, right, that we can easily understand. Um, And I think that once you start looking at the ways that Soldiers felt pressured to um, maintain a certain performance of masculinity. Then we can sort of see how often they might have obscured their disability, not because it was minor, but because it was so important to maintain that masculine front. Did that make sense? (laughs) That made perfect sense. Okay, good. I think that's one of the things that I that I thought was most important, right? And of course, the example of this is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who um, was really the first. It, it, it was the first case study that I that I did um, when starting this project, and he really became central to the rest of the book. He he became sort of my Rosetta Stone to the rest of these topics, and it's. Um, I think that he's a good. Um, example of what it is that you're getting at with gender, class, and disability, right? That it's very easy and it has been very easy to um, not notice the fact that Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was disabled uh, because he was so good at maintaining an, a certain image of middle-class masculinity, right? Um it was critical to him to make sure that he moved in ways that 
appeared typical that he continued to work. I mean, the man worked and worked and worked and worked. Um, And all of that was connected to making his disability less obvious, right? The more that he, the more that he adhered to those standards, the less disabled he appeared to others to the point where his disability sort of disappears, right? And it disappears during his lifetime and it disappears from the record. Um, And it's important to, as a side note here, it's important to note that yes, people knew that, that, that Chamberlain had been wounded. um, But, and, and scholars have written about the fact that he was wounded, but that's always where the story ended, right? That he was wounded and he, he overcame, quote unquote, overcame the disability. Um, but what is the, the catch 22 here is that the more that these men adhered to the expectations of middle-class masculinity, the less disabled they looked which means they were less worthy for support. So what happens is this really difficult, this really complicated thing that soldiers have to go through, this negotiation that they have to go to where socially they are required to behave and move and act in certain ways that adhere to middle-class masculinity. But the more they do that, the more they're punished by not being deserving of support. And so in order to get that support in the form of pensions, they have to emasculate themselves, right? They have to, um, they have to get on, get down on their knees and say, I am completely incapable of working. I can't, I can't do anything. I can't care for myself. I can't get out of bed many days. They have to create this narrative of abject, you know, um, inability. Yeah, and, and, and oh, I'm sorry. I, I think that's one of the most fascinating parts is is how you're able to think about what this would do to soldiers' honor, right? And yeah. how that is such an important part of uh, 19th century American uh, masculinity too is honor culture. Absolutely, yeah, for sure, and and the um, and the fact that I mean, tied to issues of honor, uh, certainly is issues of dependence, feelings about dependence, right? Dependence, pauperism was sort of the worst thing that you could be, particularly as a man, right? And what was at the heart of being a pensioner was asking other people for support, right? Financial support. That was the opposite of what you were supposed to be as an upstanding, middle-class, honorable man, right? Respectable man. Um, And so it put men into a really difficult position. Um, And it often meant that men simply didn't get support because either they were unable to or they were unwilling to um, create the or conform, I should say, to the narrative that the Pension Bureau wanted them to to fit into. One of the other more fascinating parts of the book, and I, I think so much of this book is fascinating, I have no clue how you cram so much in 160 pages, uh, <laughs> but is how you cover competing claims over soldiers' bodies. So strikingly, you discuss how the federal government claimed ownership over soldiers' bodies, body parts, particularly amputated arms and legs, as part of an endeavor to improve medical education. What did you find most engrossing about this part of your research as you were conducting it? 
Yeah. Um, this is the chapter. This is really funny um, to me anyway. I don't know if it's funny to anyone else. But uh, when I was first um, for, first working on this project, um, I sort of had this idea that I was going to write a little bit about about bodies and body parts. And right away, it became all of my my colleagues that were helping me that were reading drafts, everybody loved the chapter. And I thought, okay, well, then it's got to stay, right? <laughs> like, people are telling me that it's that it's important to the narrative, and that it's a good that it's interesting. So it's got to stay. But then the problem was fitting it into the rest of the book. And one of my readers very, I think, astutely said, you're going to have to find a way that you can make the argument that a chapter about dead bodies fits into a book about living bodies, about disability, right? And that was a challenge. Um, but I, there was something about the, that chapter um, where I talk about, the, I think it's chapter three, where I talk about um, bodies and body parts um, that I just was like, I know it's in there. <laughs> I've just got to, I've just got to find that thread and pull it, right? Um, the thing that I found most I guess, compelling about that chapter was um, how it really cut to the chase of, of authority in the book and, and competing, um, competing ideas about who had authority over bodies. Right. And the, the story that it really encapsulates is a story that I start that chapter with, in which a young a young soldier goes to the Army Medical Museum, which was the repository that was created to collect the, the, these body parts from soldiers during the war for scientific study. He goes to the Army Medical Museum, and a curator walks up to him, and he says, I'm here for my limb. And the curator says, uh, well, you can't have it. <laughs> and the soldier says, why? It's mine, right? And they have this back and forth over who does this limb belong to? And the soldier says, well, it belongs to me because it's mine. It's from my body, right? It's part of me. And the curator says, and of course I'm paraphrasing here, but the curator says, well, when you, when you enlisted, you signed a form that signed your body over to the United States government for three years or the duration of the war. That limb is part of your body and the war is not over yet and neither is your enlistment. So that limb belongs to us. Right. And that became sort of the key to understanding that chapter to me, because in the same way that soldiers were um, struggling with their officers and trying to articulate the, the, um, the symptoms that they were having and trying to make sure that they're, illnesses were understood as legitimate in the same way that pensioners were trying to prove the legitimacy of their ailments to the pension bureau. Um, there's something very similar happening over these body parts, right? There's a conflict over what is, who owns these, who do they belong to and how can they be useful? Right. And so you see this same sort of conflict with authority figures, the same way that happens with officers, the same way it happens with pension bureaucrats. Um, and I, that ended up being the thread that I was able to pull to make that, that chapter fit in with everything else. Um, and it, it's hard. That chapter was hard because there's, because sourcing is hard. There, there weren't 
as many firsthand accounts of, you know, soldiers talking about, you know, where their limb was housed. You know, I just, I could not find those. I, I, you know, who knows, maybe they're out there somewhere and, and some graduate student is going to write an awesome dissertation about them. Uh, but I couldn't find them. And so it was also challenging in that it meant that I had to write through the perspectives of authority figures like, um, like John Brinton, who I, I spent a lot of time writing about his memoir. He was one of the curators of the Army Medical Museum. I had to try to read against his, his um, memoir or his memories of the museum and try to analyze it. Um, this was also the chapter that made me read the most, probably outside of history. I had to think about anthropology and the, you know, the history of ethnography and bone collecting. And it, it was... Um, it was a really fun chapter to write. <laughs> I think it also shows the desperation for not only body parts and whatnot, but for access to real material for medical officials. Uh, for so long, they were denied cadavers and whatnot. And yeah. here's, here's all of a sudden uh, a vast number of body parts that they can study and, and see the effects of war on and, and to think about uh, trying to have medical advances too, but within that, you know, they're doing things that we would think are very unethical, right? Right. Yeah. A- absolutely. And um, I think that that you sort of nailed why it is that the doctors are so invested in this. Um, and one thing that was another thing that was I think challenging about this was trying to write this chapter without making the doctors all look like ghouls right, who are desperate to, you know, exploit soldiers by stealing their body parts. Um, I really tried to give them, um, to be sympathetic to them as well, right? As you say, it was difficult to get access to cadavers. It was difficult to get anatomical knowledge during this era. Um, And the doctors of the time really understood this and they saw the war as a major opportunity. And I mean, Shauna Devine has written about this um, in really interesting ways um, and really kind of illustrated what this looked like and why this was so important to doctors. Um, And I I don't necessarily want to to disagree or, or say that doctors were um, that the, the quest for scientific knowledge was abhorrent or something, but I do want to say, wait a minute, there was an there's an ethical issue here. If we can agree that there's an ethical issue surrounding the collection of say Native American bones um, during the you know ten years later. Well, even during the Civil War, right, Um, out in the West during the Indian Wars, then why do we have such a hard time agreeing that there's an ethical concern around the collection of soldiers' bones? Um, That that has never totally been clear to me, and I I really tried to um, grapple with that in this book, that even in a an era before consent, the, the legal, you know, legal concept of consent. I think we can absolutely look at this and say that this was an a, a ethical lapse, right? Um, or that so doctors should have gone about this in different ways, or that they should have sought consent in different ways, and that we we really should take seriously the power dynamics here, right? Doctors were officers right? Soldiers were supposed to defer to them. So there's a lot going on here. And while I, I do want to, you know, acknowledge that these doctors um, maybe had something 
they were working towards good ends, the way that this took place, I think we should sort of grapple with the ethical uh, ramifications of it. And I think uh, your last chapter really looks at these power dynamics between uh, medical and mental health professionals and their patients, right? And uh, in your last chapter, you look at a range of mental uh, illnesses and how they affected soldiers, sometimes for nearly 50 years after the conclusion of the Civil War. In Bodies in Blue, you write about not wanting to impose our understanding of mental illness, including such things as post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, on Civil War soldiers. Your reasons for doing so are very strong. And I was wondering if you could shed some light on your thought process there, mostly because I think it offers a strong methodological way forward for disability history. This was also a challenge because... Um, historiographically speaking, there's been a lot of debate over this issue within the Civil War world. Um, the issue of whether or not it is fair to um, consider what we would call today post-traumatic stress disorder has been hotly debated, right? And what I was very much kind of concerned about when I when I started this, this chapter, and th- I should say this is the chapter that um, I rewrote the most often, or the, the most times, I should say, gave me a really hard time. I, I, I was really struggling with it for a long time. Um, but one of the things I was really grappling with was this concern over, can we use PTSD as a lens to understand the mental trauma that happens to soldiers during and after the war? Or is that presentist, right? Is there is there something um, inappropriate about applying a modern diagnosis to people in the past? That was really the crux of the the debate that that has been happening, that was happening and continues, I think, to, to rage. Um, and I really wanted to move us past that. Um, first of all, I mean, I think it's really important to point out that I don't think I, I don't think really any civil war historians are writing where they are specifically using the term post-traumatic stress disorder. I think most of us, most that I'm aware of anyway, have agreed that using the, the terminology of a modern diagnosis is just simply not right. We shouldn't apply that to people in the past, but um, folks like Diane Miller Somerville have said, we can take what we know about the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and look at the sources of the past and say, these people were experiencing something akin to that, right? Maybe we can use it as a way of trying to understand what they were experiencing, even if we're not going to say it was PTSD. Um, and so what I tried to do in that chapter was to say, I'm not going to debate whether this was PTSD or not. Like, I'm not interested in that debate anymore because I think that it just keeps sucking us in. It just keeps sucking his Civil War historians in. And we just keep getting mired in this did it exist or did it not exist thing. And instead, what I wanted to do was I, I said, you know, I've done the research in these patient records. I looked at three asylums, Utica, um, the the St- New York State Lunatic Asylum at Utica, which I call Utica, the um, New York State Asylum for the Chronic Insane, or what I call Willard, um, and the uh, final one was St. Elizabeth's, which is um, 
the was called at one point the government asylum in um, the government asylum for the insane, I think, in Washington, D.C. And I said, you know, I, what I wanted to do in this chapter was look at the patient records that I had from those three asylums. And I was, you know, saying, I'm not going to go in and diagnose them with PTSD, but what I am seeing is evidence of trauma, right? These are people who are talking about, you know, literally some cases saying, um, I, I was perfectly healthy until the war. And then this is when all of my problems started. This is when I became insane. This is when I lost my, my rationality or however they're phrasing it. I have one guy who talks about, um, I think that he says something along the lines of, I lost the equivalent of 10 or 15 years, um, because of, of this experience. And so my, my thought when it came to this definitional thing about PTSD was we're losing all of the actual experience by getting bogged down in this debate over what it was called. What I, what I'm getting at is that I, I wanted to just look at the sources, look at the voices of these people and talk about what their actual experiences were without feeling like I needed to label it, right? And I think what that allowed me to do was to really spend that chapter talking about how these soldiers were interpreting what was happening to them in these asylums, how they felt, um, and how they felt about their futures, Right. And then also in the second half of the chapter, I look at families and how families were thinking about this, how they were grappling with it. And, you know, my thought was all of these people, whether it's families or soldiers, they're all linking it to the war. They're they're all linking it to the war in one way or another. Um, Did they have the terminology PTSD? No. Do I, you know, say that all these people had PTSD? No, I don't. But I still think that their experiences and their their recollections or their descriptions of um, of their experience with mental illness after the war, I still think that that's a worthy thing to study and try to understand. So that's really what I tried to do in that chapter. And I, I think that you're right that I think that this is a, an important way of of moving forward in disability history and even in medical history. Right? Is is looking at the experience. Um, and being less concerned with whether it fits into certain diagnoses. Um, and I think this, to, to, to kind of link back, I think this gets back also to the social model, right? That um, we can, by taking the voices of disabled people seriously, I think that we can get at the what the experience was without feeling like we need to devolve into labels, right? Once we get into labels, and I think that that steals all of the oxygen from the conversation, that's we're, that's a, a that's ending the conversation. Was it this or was it that? Well, we are never going to know because we don't have time machines, right? But what we can do is look at the sources and see what was the experience? What are they saying? How are they uh, trying to grapple with what their lives are like after the asylum or you know, while they're living in the asylum, how are they articulating this? What's their experience, right? So that's that's really how I came at that. 
Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure getting to chat about Bodies in Blue and to learn more about your research and to the history of Civil War disability. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. And a special thank you to the University of Georgia Press for a review copy of Bodies in Blue. Head to the University of Georgia Press's website to purchase a copy of Sarah's book. And finally, thank you to our listeners for joining us today at New Books in History, a channel of New Books Network. I'm Chris Babbitts, wishing you the best as you engage with cutting-edge works of history. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.